Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the shepherds here. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 1 again. Uh, my brother lives in Oregon, and he watches online. And he said, if you do this, Jeff, you should at least give the page numbers. So it's page 989, if you don't have one of the journals, that kind of a thing. But I'm thinking to myself, my brother doesn't have the same Bible at home. So Dave, if you're watching, just use the uh, table of contents. You'll find it. He should know. Come on. Anyway, I don't know why I even said that, but uh, page 989. We are uh, continuing on in 2 Thessalonians, and uh, Darren kind of gave that, that preface last week, and uh, I do encourage you to have your journal open or the Bible open simply because this is a set of verses that build on each other. In fact, the initial sentence is quite long, so as it goes through, it's not just a long sentence, but it goes out and it touches a lot of deep theological ideas, and some of them are difficult ideas along the way. So you may want to be peeking down at individual verses as we go. So right off the bat, we're going to jump right in with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 6. And uh, I'm going to start reading with 5, simply because that puts it in context. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed... God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So right off the bat, we jump in with this whole idea that, that God considers it just to pay with affliction those who have afflict you. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times when I want vengeance. There are times when something happens to me and I just have a little bit of a, of a response that pushes back. But when I realize that it has eternal consequence, I tend to be less uh, vengeful. I tend to not necessarily want the worst to happen to somebody. And yet here, Paul is talking about this, that when somebody persecutes you, don't worry about it because God will persecute them. Like that's supposed to really make us feel better. And it's like, wait a minute, that's the kind of God that God is. And it sets up this sense that, wait, are, are we talking about the same God, this God of love? And it, it lays it out. Now, one of the fascinating things about this is you have to remember who Paul is, that Paul was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. Paul was literally going out and putting Christians to death. He would hunt them down and find out believers and followers and disciples of Jesus, and he would persecute them and afflict them. And God stopped him on the road to Damascus, appeared to him, blinded him, and stopped and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is the same guy who stops and says, indeed, God will afflict those who afflict you. So this whole part of it, though, turns into something that's really quite beautiful as we go into this next passage, this next verse, is that what happens is that Paul says in, in verse, um, verse 7, he goes on and he says, and to grant you, this is the, the other thing that God does, is that God won't just do that. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, but he will also grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. So he stops and he says he's going to grant relief. 
So Paul knows that, and he understands that, but one of the things about Paul is that he's been granted relief. That in this mix, we have to look at it and realize that Paul himself, in his affliction, if God would have afflicted right away, it would have done Paul in. But this relief that he talks about, and the word in in the Greek literally means to rest, that he will provide rest for you and he will provide relief for you. How many of you feel like you've been persecuted at some point in your life? Yeah, right up front. He's saying all the time, like right now. He's having to sit through this. And this is, you don't have to say amen quite so quickly. But we face afflictions in our life, and the thing we long for and want is relief. We want rest from it. We want to be delivered out from it. And yet, the very thing that Paul says when he says this is troubling. So I know we're racing through these first verses fast, but as he comes in, he uses this this concept of relief. Look at it again in verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. That that relief, that rest, doesn't come until that day when Jesus is revealed. That day has not yet come today. So when Paul looks at this affliction and he sees what's going on and he says, he's going to grant relief, he's going to give you rest, it's not happening in his lifetime, it's not happening in theirs. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? This is a great message. This whole concept though, if you think about it, if God would have afflicted vengeance on Paul and taken him out, Paul would never have been saved. Instead, as God is slow and holds back with mercy and allows Paul to be transformed by God's grace, and God literally hunts him down and comes after him, Paul not only becomes a, a believer, he becomes a missionary, and he goes out, and he goes out to Thessalonica. And he preaches the gospel to the Thessalonians. And we're reading that that word now because not only did he not give them relief right then by destroying those who afflicted, Paul was one of those, but he allowed Paul to go through that whole part, saved Paul. Paul went on to save the Thessalonians. That's actually a beautiful picture when we look at it. So this concept of how God moves in his timing is a part where once again, we just finished with the book of Habakkuk and we saw that here was Habakkuk and he was crying out and he was saying, hey, we have an evil leader leading us. God, can you do something about it? And he goes, okay, I'll do something about it. I'll send the Chaldeans and they'll destroy the entire country. How about that? When we start to get this picture of God, we realize he's working on a whole other level, on a whole other plane. He's doing work in our lives that is beyond what we might understand and beyond what we might choose to do. So Paul knows this, and Paul begins to talk about that with this whole concept, but he puts it into a time frame. He gives a timeline, and he says, this will happen when... And we saw that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey. Now, one of the things that I want to I do for, for you right off the bat is this idea of the day of, of the Lord that when Christ is revealed, 
That word revealed means, anybody guess? Revealed. I always like it that when you you hear a word and somebody's going to say it has a deeper meaning, it doesn't necessarily have a deeper meaning, but you can unpack it a little bit and understand that the word literally is apocalypsis. You've heard of the apocalypse? This is the word that's used here. That when Jesus Christ is revealed, the apocalypse is that point, that day when Jesus is revealed, because of all that happens on that day, it's the end of times, it's the apocalypse when Jesus comes. On that day when he's revealed, that word has gotten that meaning with us now. But that meaning is, is that it's the revealing is like a veil going away. It's as if that Jesus is partially veiled, and then when he is fully unveiled in front of all of us, then on that day, these things start to happen. So this idea that Jesus will be fully revealed means that right now, we don't know yet who he really is. We think we know who Jesus is. We have an idea of who he is. And I know that even as a kid, when I saw flannel graphs, I could tell when they put Jesus up. Yesterday, my wife and I were out moving around town, and there was a guy with some long hair and a big beard, and he looked like Jesus. And Eugenie said, look, it's Jesus. And he looked like Jesus. It was like, that's who Jesus is. That's what he looks like to us. We have a certain image in our mind and his character and his personality and who he is. But the reality is, this verse says that when he is revealed, when he is unveiled, we will see him as he really is, and a lot of things are going to happen differently. That concept says we don't really know him as he is. That there's one thing that you write in your journal is this, that we do not know Jesus as he really is. That he is going to be revealed and things change in that regard. I know that I constantly discover more and more about God as I, as I read his word, as I study, as I walk, and he teaches me different things through life, the good things and the bad things. But when I um, left Hume and went up to work at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, it was a change of pace. For, for quite a few years, I lived doing youth work in the mountains in the Sierra Nevadas at a youth camp. And God then stopped and said, I'm going to send you to Seattle to do this work with a rescue mission, working with the poor and the broken and the homeless in Seattle. I knew nothing about the poor and broken. I'd never been to Seattle. And so I literally took out my Bible and I began to look for verses about poverty and brokenness and how God felt about the poor. And I don't know when they put those verses in, but somewhere they started adding a ton of verses about the poor and the broken. That those verses didn't really even stand out to me. I didn't know them. But once I started looking, I began to discover a whole other aspect of who God is. It was as if until that moment, he was veiled to me. And then there was an unveiling. And I got to see more of who he is. And this says until that day, there is more of God that we do not know than there is that we do. And we have to understand from the very beginning that we do not know yet who he really is. Listen to what happens when he's revealed. This is, this is crazy. So, and to grant relief to you, this is verse 7, 
who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed, unveiled from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's break that down right off the bat. He's going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, when I first read that, I said, all right, clear point of fact is that this isn't his his weaker angels. This is his mighty angels. Now, to make that clear, how many of you came to Christmas Boulevard this last Christmas season? We had angels moving around. Did you see them? Those were not the mighty ones. (laughs) Did you see their wings? They had these little tiny wings. It's like, you know, every time a, a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. It's like, we need bigger bells around here. You know, it's just like, those angels did not appear to be mighty. And I love it that they, they did that and stood in for that. But even this concept here of what it says, that in, in, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, at least it implies that next Christmas we should set our angels on fire. <laughs> Anyone? Volunteers? <laughs> oh, you were voting yes, let's do it. You didn't want to be one of them. She just has the lighter. That's the way that works. Now, the, the way the text plays out is that literally this is saying that he is bringing his mighty angels and the flaming fire doesn't actually appear to apply to the angels. It actually means how Jesus appears in a flaming fire. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because all throughout the Old Testament, as we hear about God, God shows up to Moses in a burning bush in fire and he leads the people of Israel with a pillar of fire out in the desert. That this is, an, this is an icon of who God is, is flaming fire. And we could go through text after text, but more than likely what this references to is actually in Isaiah 66, multiple times in that chapter. And we're not going to go back to Isaiah 66 this morning, but if you want to look at it later, you will actually see that both Paul and Jesus, Jesus does it in other passages, refers to this flaming fire fire, that it's part of the judgment, that it's part of the persecution he's bringing, that it's part of this, this end times that is coming, is he's coming with this flaming fire that will, cons- will never consume and will continue to burn for all eternity. That's what it's talking about. That he's coming with his mighty angels, he's coming with flaming fire, and this starts to be pretty stark. And it says that he's coming this way for a couple of reasons. He is inflicting vengeance on those, and there are two groups of people listed here. Some believe it could be the same, but but we get two, two descriptions of it in either case. But he is inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's two, if, if the feels like the air's been sucked out of the room because it suddenly got really heavy in here about what the consequences are when Jesus appears and when he's revealed and he's unveiled, then you're feeling the right thing. There should be an invisceral response coming out of your gut that stops and says, oh, wow, you just got, you got really, really real. It just got uncomfortable that our God, who is a loving God, would do this against those who do not know him and against those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
that as we look at this, this vengeance and this punishment that God brings just seems to be so harsh. But I want to remind you of a story. That what happens when, when Moses is in Egypt and the plagues have become um, part of what, what is laid out to try to get the Egyptians to turn, to repent, to, to go a different way, that they won't believe in this God, that they won't obey what God is asking them to do to let my people go. You remember that whole story? That finally comes down this night when the angel of death is going to pass over all of Egypt. And as it does so, there's only one way that you can be delivered of that. That if you obey what God calls them to do, and he says, you need to go out and find a, a lamb without blemish, a perfectly pure lamb, no blemish, and that you're going to sacrifice that lamb, and the blood of that lamb is going to be put on the doorpost. And when the angel of the Lord comes by, if that blood is on your doorpost, the angel will pass by that house. But if the blood is not on that doorpost, then the angel of death will take the firstborn from every home that does not have that protection on it. There are two types of people who did not put blood on their house. Those who did not know God and those who refused to obey God. Because of that, they suffered the affliction that would come next. But better than that, is this concept of what happens with the doorposts. And I, there's a quote by Charles Spurgeon where he says, the Lord did not check who inside the house was worthy. He checked for the blood on the doorposts. None of us is worthy. Only the blood of Jesus can cover us. I love that idea. That in that house, it doesn't matter who was in that house, it matters whose blood was on the doorposts that we start to get this picture of who Jesus is in this regard, it's that all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. And yet this, this saving grace comes from the Lamb of God. And when that blood is on the doorpost, it doesn't matter who's in the house. It matters whose blood is on the doorpost. That that picture is what happens in this scene, that it's those who don't know God, who won't obey, who won't put the blood on the doorpost, those are the ones that have these consequences. The ones that stop and say, God, I trust you, I believe you, I'm going to reach out to you in faith for that protection that you provide, for what I need because of my sin, then God saves them. That is laid out here as we go forward as well. But as we talk about this, even what they suffer, this idea that, uh, look at uh, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is just hellish, literally. The, the description of what this is, eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, meaning you're also away from the glory of his might. You're away from the ability of him to protect you. And it's that point of just whether they don't put it on their doorpost or whether they're not in that house, but they look at it and go, no, I don't believe in God or I don't want to obey what God is calling me to do. And the consequences mean that they have moved away from God rather than moving towards him as their salvation. 
the consequences come up to that level. And it's eternal. You know, even as the teaching team talked through this passage, we got to this set of verses, and uh, we all tried to look for an additional verse that might have been inserted here, a different verse that would bring some hope and some, some brightness to this whole passage. But what we found was that Paul here doesn't mince words. He doesn't go soft on this. He lays it out the way it is. In fact, if you want to know who talks about hell more than anyone else in Scripture, it's Jesus himself. That Jesus himself stops and says, do you understand the consequences of not having Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he lays out this urgency so that that feel we feel right now should drive us to stop and say, wait a minute, we should do something about this. Whether that's in our own faith and leaning towards him, or whether that's those that we know in our family and friends and neighborhoods that don't know him. This heaviness was intended by God because it's a consequence that's pretty severe. And it's laid out in some literally hellish language. But here's what we do. We take this idea that a loving God would not send somebody to eternal destruction and hell. And so we begin to soften it. We try to redefine it. We get to a point where we even try to apologize for God and what he's doing here. But it's crazy when we think about it that a just, holy, righteous, wise God states this, while meanwhile a sinful, foolish, flawed, confused people try to apologize to God as if we're somehow more compassionate than he is. That somehow we've got a better picture and a better way of how to do things. Uh, I, for one, don't want to put you in charge. Some of you in particular. God stops and sets this forward and says, this is the way it will be. And we as flawed creatures begin to question it and begin to wonder about it and begin to stop and say, man, isn't this harsh? Yes. Yes, it is. The weight of hell should trouble you. And one of the greatest tragedies here is that uh, human beings that are made by God, human beings that are made in the image of God, human beings that have been given a purpose to glorify God, when we've been designed to spend eternity with God, that instead that there would be any human being that would be separated from God for all eternity. The very purpose and reason they were created. That in and of itself, this distance from God, is a part that is assigned to hell as well. We we have this picture of hell that it's like a place for especially bad people. And heaven is for especially good people. The, the, The world teaches this, that that's kind of the way it is. Hell's for really bad people, heaven's for really good people. Hmm. It's not true. You're all really bad people. And many of you are really good people. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. Here's Paul who is literally putting Christians to death. He's a really bad person. But he happens to be in that house that has the blood on the doorpost and Paul is saved. Even as a bad person. And there are other people who are really good, kind, nice people. But without having that blood as a covering for their sin... 
The smallest sin condemns them. It separates them. Because the greatest sin is the one of not accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, of accepting that offering of his blood. As this goes, let's jump to verse 10. In verse 10, it moves forward, and it says, when he comes on that day, that day. So let me back up to 9 so you can see what he's saying. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day, that day that he is revealed, on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So he's talking about what happens to those who are, are going to hell, and now he's talking about those who believe, and he goes down a completely different direction. On that day, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And this is this part about the marveling thing. I want you to just think about this for a second. This word marvel means to be astounded. It means to be surprised. That when Jesus is revealed, when the veil is removed, we see him as he really is. And it says, all who have believed in him will marvel. That means none of us are sitting here with a correct idea of who God is and are going, yeah, that's what I thought. That's who I thought he was. None of us. All who have believed will marvel, will be astonished, will be surprised. Now, years ago when we were, Eugenie and I were living at Hume, we work with a lot of young college staff who then end up, you know, dating. They meet at camp, they start dating, they decide they're going to get married, and they would ask us to do premarital counseling. We would spend time doing premarriage counseling. We'd marry a ton of them and that kind of a thing. And we would had a lot of young couples over the years that we got a chance to be a part of their, their marriage. The, one of the couples, 10 years after they've been married, um, they came back to us to, to visit us one day. And to kind of help you understand um, how this played out is we were, at that point, I was the executive director at the camp at Hume Lake, and the director's house is right on top of a hill in the center of camp. It's kind of a really bad spot for it. Because everybody in camp goes by this house. Well, over the years of working at Hume, we knew a lot of people. And as they would go down that road, they would go right by the house. And they would go, oh, that's where Jeff and Eugenie live. And so they would stop by and just to see us. And they'd knock on the door all day long. People knocking on the door. And we're always right in the middle of things. So this couple, Mitch and Sue, Mitch and Sue come up and they're up at Hume and they are coming by our house and they knock on the door. And it was a Saturday and we had some other plans and we were getting ready to do some things and here's Mitch and Sue at the door. And I don't know, maybe just us, you probably have never felt this way. Were you glad to see someone? But just for a second and it's like, good, see you. Just me. We were thrilled to see them. We were glad to see them, but we didn't really want to hang out that much. And they said, hey, can we come in for a second? Ah, no, why don't you just stand at the door? It's kind of polite to just talk at the, you've done that before. Don't look at me like that. You guys have done the same thing. You just stand at the door, you don't invite them in, and they're like, can we come in? Well, now it's rude, so we bring them in. And then they say this. They say, you know, we are celebrating our 10th anniversary coming up this summer, and we're so grateful for what you did in our early dating and marriage. And 
We just wanted to say thank you, and we never really said thank you when, uh, when you married us. So what we want to do is uh, we want to send you and Eugenie on a trip. And they said, we would like to send you to London for 10 days. So we're going to do airfare. We're going to cover all the lodging. We've rented a car for you so that you can drive out to, there's bed and breakfasts we've got set up for you and Bath and some other places. And we've got like tickets to Les Mis in London and Stomp and a couple of other plays and things to do. And they set up and they said, you know what? We also realize that if you're in London, that you probably, that could get expensive. So we're going to also give you $1,000 in spending money. This is awesome, right? We were astounded. We marveled. We were surprised. Now, what I want you to understand is we had an idea of who Mitch and Sue was. We were excited to see them. But what they did next blew us away. It surprised us. It astounded us. We were marveled. And we went. We first said, no, we can't do that. That's too much. And they said, we thought you'd say that. So we're going to buy the plane tickets as soon as we get home. You either give us the right dates or you're going to get tickets for any random date and they'll be wasted. (laughs) We gave them the right dates. We went and we had a great time in London. But that cons... And any of you want to do a similar trip? I mean, I just... (laughs) I can work with Darren to change the calendar dates and we'll make it work. (laughs) What I want you to understand is my idea of Mitch and Sue was here. What Mitch and Sue did next was astounding. It was wonderful. It, It was marvelous. When we see Jesus on that day, when he is revealed, he will astound you. It will be wonderful. It will be marvelous. It will surprise you. You do not know yet who he really is. This is scripture and it says on that day all who have believed in him will marvel. And sometimes in my faith it gets just a little too simple. I get a little too comfortable with the idea of who God is. And along the way what I find is I find that I go this idea of hell is 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 destruction, and it's a bit of of that distance of being away from the presence of God. And I find myself in my day picking up pieces and traces of hell. I find myself distancing myself from God. I literally do the things that are associated with hell. I distance myself from him rather than moving towards him. And then as we come into these little pieces of heaven, we're looking at this idea that we would know him that we would want to know him better, that we would be searching hard after him. If we're going to be as surprised and astonished and, and marvel at him, then why don't I want to know more about him? Why am I not just hungry and thirsty to know more of who God is? And we're left here in this picture where daily I live with traces of hell in my life instead of picking up the pieces of heaven. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying that's me. That as I read the two different sides of this day, I so desperately want to be on that side that is pursuing God, wants to draw closer to God, wants to know who God is. The bottom line is that you can imagine anything you want about who God is, but he is more than that. 
He is better than that. He is kinder than that. He is more compassionate than that. He is wiser than that. He's more present than that. That literally when you start to think of all the things that God is and does, it's the one time you can say with complete just beauty, OMG. Oh my God. Those are the words that will be spoken in surprise. Oh my God. But it'll be words of worship. It'll be words that will lay out a whole different picture of what this is. My prayer for you is literally Paul's in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. That's my prayer. It would go something like this. To this end, I pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. That the things that you live out, that this God who is so much more, so much wiser, so much kinder, so much more compassionate, that he would infuse you with power. That you would live life differently. So much so that your neighbors would notice, your coworkers would notice, your family would notice because God is doing a work in you. Oswald Chambers, he has a, a, a quote where he talks about this and he says, the saint who is intimate with Jesus will never leave impressions of himself, but only the impression that Jesus is having his unhindered way with you. That as we move through life, that we wouldn't leave a mark because of who we are and what we've done, but because we've been in the presence of God, that people would note that, and the impression that would be on the world is when we would move by, they would have an impression that God has had his unhindered way with us. Has God had his unhindered way with us? That's the question. If we're troubled at all of this dark story of hell, There should be a part of us created in the image of God that is compassionate and cares for them and that we would strive to be close to God so that we would be impressed by him so that we might have some impact on those around us. I want to close with uh, something that I wrote. It just is, uh, it's a weird thing, but I looked at it and I was, after studying this passage, I found myself in a point where just in in a in a form of worship, I wrote out these words. So I'm going to make you sit and listen to them. Um, Some of you may need to close your eyes to focus, whatever that is. I just need you to listen. We carry with us an idea of who Jesus is. Yet scripture says that when we see him for the first time, all who have believed in him will marvel at him. That means that regardless of how wonderful and marvelous we might imagine him to be, he is more than that. He is bigger than that. He is faster, smarter, better, holier, and more loving than we can ever begin to have fathomed. There are 10,000 things that he has made that stun me with his brilliance. 100,000 I can't even understand, and 100 million more that I do not yet know even exist. He has laid the foundation of the earth before I was ever born. He set the stars in place before the first physics book was ever written, before there was even a physicist to write it. I have never been to the deepest depths of the sea, but he is there. I cannot fully fathom the tides. I know so little of the pull of the moon. He invented rain. 
He froze it to give us snow. And the same hands that planted the forests of Siberia painted the intricate wings of the monarch butterfly. And what of Orion, Pleiades, the Milky Way, or the Horsehead Nebula? He knows when a mountain goat gives birth, and he knows the exact chemical structure of a gopher's teeth. And what are the gates of hell? Where does he store the souls that are yet to be born? In all my wisdom, I can't explain the parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, walking on water, turning the water into wine, helping the blind to see, the lame to walk, or the dead to rise. With all my knowledge, I cannot fully explain angels or demons or how the Trinity works. Let's be honest. We don't even know where we left the Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) This incredible being, this person known as Jesus Christ, is really a mystery to us. He has already established the unending aspects of eternity and created the most distant regions of the universe. And yet, he sat this morning with me in my prayers. And at the very same moment, he was sitting there with you too. And when he is fully revealed, when that veil is removed, we will see him for who he is. We will know him as he really is. And we will be surprised And we will be astounded, and we will marvel. And he, he will be who he has always been, and he will be who he always will be. For great is our God. We don't really know him yet, but all of life changes for eternity when we do. Let me pray for us. Lord, I am so grateful for your majesty, for your greatness, for your wisdom, for your love, for your salvation, for so many more things that I could probably spend eternity if I only knew describing them. But Lord, this morning, I just simply ask that you would create in each of us a desire to know you more, a desire to move towards you, a desire to have your life impressed upon us. That, Lord, our life might be one where we point towards you and not to our own flesh. That, Lord, for those who desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel, you might use us to be salt and light in this community. And we ask these things in your name.